0: Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, RedemptionsHill.com. All right, good morning. There we go. It's like the best of four weeks. I appreciate that a lot. I don't know about you, but, uh, kind of contemplating letting Pastor Dennis and, uh, Garrett just pray the whole time. I was just kind of enjoying that. Um, uh, Yeah, so good morning. Uh, It's good to be here with you. It's good to be actually here with you, not just only online or anything like that. It's good to be able to gather and worship God uh, with you. So today we jumped into a 10-week series, a brand new series for us uh, over uh, the Beatitudes. And while I know, if you've been around me for a while, I kind of do this all the time, and I know I don't ever start out a series going like, this is going to be awful. I know I don't ever do that, but... I still can't help but say I'm really, really excited about this series, not only because of the content of what we're going over, but also the timing of which we're going to cover it. I think it's gonna be uh, really extremely good for us. Uh, I believe that. If you look at your calendar, right, I said this is gonna be about a 10-week series. Um, that's gonna lead us up right up to uh, the, the elections. Like We're gonna be pretty much right there. And, and let's be honest, 2020 has already been a lot. Uh, like a whole lot. Um, None of us have remained unscathed um, this year. Uh, We've been introduced to the word pandemic. I I don't think that any of us ever said pandemic 12 months ago. I don't think it was really a word in our vocabulary, and now we're very comfortable with it, Uh, or at least we've been forced to be familiar with it. Maybe that's a better way to say it. We become more familiar with fear and anxiety than we've probably ever been. Uh, we've also been forced to figure out situations that we've just—they were never on our radar before. Like, am I essential? Like, man, okay, that's harsh. Like, when you're trying to read through, I guess I'm not essential. And uh, then the possibility of losing your job because you just I can't can't go anywhere. Like, that's something that we've never really dealt with before. Uh, many parents are being forced to kind of figure out. Okay, uh, since we don't know. Uh, If the kids will be in like, what in the world do we do when we work? We've been forced to kind of figure that out. That's never really been on the the radar uh, either. And those things don't even take into account the kind of just really heavy topics that have come our way already. Right, if you look at uh, the, the regular ones that we forced to, to, to look at, right, some heavy ones that we've been dealing with before even COVID really started jumping off. Were really like the, the, the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd and, and all the emotions that they brought with them. It, it, and maybe the positive and poor ways that the church has responded. Uh, we've had to take into account the heated debate of what to make of Black Lives Matter. And hopefully we've had the wisdom to split that into categories of the words, the organization and the movement and figure out what we think about each of those. We've had the politicization of masks, don't take my rights away. The weaponizing of information as well, where you're going, what in the world is true right now? So we've had a unique virus come and rip down our way of life, but we've also had a simultaneous rising of the tide of frustration and anger all around us that's caused like probably one of the greatest divides that we've ever seen at least in our lifetime culminating in riots cancel culture that's out of control tribalism like we've never seen uh and just quite honestly a a level of rage that's difficult to be around but but here's the interesting or maybe here's the better way to say here's the worrisome part our tension is this high already while the force or the inertia of the election process hasn't really even got going yet Meaning from here, it kind of gets worse. Yay, like a good intro into a series, right? More tense, more heated. And at the boiling point that's coming to us, I think that's the exact point that we need to hear the words of Jesus to come in the Beatitudes in Matthew. It's going to get heavier than it already is, but Jesus has a beautiful message that still stands, even in light of what we're going to go through. So why do we need to hear these words so badly as followers of Christ? The becoming political process, and I know I'm going to speak, Uh, in in roundabout ways, and I'm not smart enough to understand some of it. I I get that. But the the political process will heavily be based on answering one single question if you cut away all the nonsense, Uh, how do we find happiness and flourishing as a country moving forward? Two sides will politically posture in a very fierce battle, but underneath all of the who's right, who's just, who's moral, who's a decent human being and who's not, is the real question of whose version of happiness should we follow and who's got the best version for us. We saw this in the last election cycle, right? MAGA was always a picture presented to a disenfranchised country of a happier existence. That's always what it was. Elect me and I'll change everything that made you unhappy. Elect me, and I'll make the country prosper financially. Elect me, and I'll make jobs come back. Elect me, and the U.S. will regain wealth because I'm going to make us better deals. I'm not arguing if that was a good plan or a bad plan, or whether it succeeded or failed. I'm simply saying that it was definitely about happiness. Unhappy people being sold a version of happiness. Then, right now, the the, the DNC just happened, and if you watched parts of it or maybe even just saw some some excerpts, you may see the vision of happiness that was partially sold. I know that there's more to it than this, but what was partially sold was this. Happiness via unity, love, kindness, and human decency. That was the picture. Which, let's be honest, uh, and and you know you can never pin me down on one side or the other, but that was a pretty smart play. Why? Because we're really angry and divided right now. So that's a happiness that a lot of people, no matter where they stand on the political aisle, are going, huh, I'm I'm interested. In this way, though, of selling you a version of happiness, the political process is partly invested in selling you a gospel. You have to understand that. It's selling you good news to live by and live through, and it's selling you a form of hope and faith. Well, I believe the political process is really important, and we should be engaged with it coming forward, as believers in a heightened time of tension and anxiety, we'll have to make sure that to not buy into a political gospel more than our Savior's gospel. That's the prime reason that we're going to the Beatitudes. Everyone's got a message. The question is, whose message will we live by, though? Check this out, too. Jesus came to live and do ministry among us. He was baptized by John to kind of kick things off. He was tempted in the desert And then he called his disciples with these very, very specific and pointed words, follow me. Which understand, like, those disciples didn't have a different call than we do. That's the same thing that we do, follow him. Then at the very beginning of his ministry, he gives his first public sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think he called it that, but that's what we call it now. Uh, And now the, the context for the sermon was that it was given in a divided culture as well. They weren't divided the same way that we are, but they were divided just like we are divided. By and large, there are two groups who are in opposition uh, for the way that their world should look in which Jesus was speaking to at that time. There was a Jewish people who really wanted to keep their old way of life and their systems going, while there was a Greco-Roman people who they had no use for the Jewish faith, and they wanted to flourish by gaining power and wealth and, and experiencing things. And they really believed that, that the flourishing or happiness really came by you getting whatever you desire. If you're following, these two cultures had a completely different view of flourishing. One wanted their glory days to be kept going with traditions and religious systems, while the other wanted to blaze into a brand new day of freedom and power. The tension largely came over deciding whose view of flourishing is right and whose view of flourishing is wrong. And in the middle of this tension, Jesus speaks to a group of people on a mountain And at the very beginning of his sermon, right, the the opening, there's no little cute story at the beginning, the very thing that he jumps into without covering anything else is Jesus breaks into what we'll consider a third path, which is called the Beatitudes, which is a list of several different versions or visions or plans for how we are to live. And Jesus' message is these versions or these visions or these ways, that these will bring you happiness and freedom. Here's the hope, though, that we would hear these words from Jesus, not as a historical sermon for people in a long time, uh, a long ways back, but that we'd hear them as words for our hearts and our souls right here in the, in the place that we are in now. And even more so as a pastor, my hope for all of us together is that we would choose to live inside Christ's plan primarily. We can invest in the political processes that are happening. But my hope is that we would never invest in them further than we would these things that Jesus says to us. So Matthew 5 is where the Sermon on the Mount opens. We'll read 1 through 12 this week, and then we're going to do a Beatitude every week, and then we're going to have some stuff at the very end of it as well. But uh, for context, that kind of gives the whole thing. So here it is, uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, Sermon on the Mount, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened up his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's an important kicker. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. This is the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. They're just the very front section. After reading those, we see eight or nine statements of blessed are, and there's a little formula, blessed are, and then it will give some sort of, of posture or disposition or situation, and then, an, and then kind of an outcome after that. Now, the reason that this is called a, a beatitude or why these are called beatitudes is in the original language, or not in the original language, in Latin, blessing is translated as, as B-E-A-T-I, and that moniker just kind of stuck with it. But here's why that matters, though. The Greek word that is actually used here is a different one, makarios. Why should we know that? Because it doesn't actually mean blessing, or at least not exactly. One of the difficulties of the Beatitudes and and incorporating them or translating them into the English language is we do not have the words to properly convey the things that, that Jesus was saying. So it's easy to, in another language, convey concrete words like truck, banana, right? Those are easy, Well, large, like, uh, large abstract ideas like Makarios are not so easy at all. So blessing isn't the only thing that they meant. The best way I could try and show what Makarios means in the original language would be, it's a combination of what we've already been talking about, about happiness and flourishing, but in a deeper sense, not happiness. Like, uh, you know, I, I had an Andy's custard last night and I'm so happy. Uh, overall happiness, a, a contentment and, and peace that, that sits over your life to where it, it, it's, it's good, I'm good. And it can't be stolen no matter what circumstance comes your way. This is the, the happiness they're talking about. And, and flourishing, there's almost not a great way to, to speak of that either. But, it, but it's a way of saying a life that is, is well. It's in a good space and a good spot. We often equate flourishing with financial means. The original language of Jesus is not doing that here. It has nothing to do with your finances. Again, why does this matter? Why is it worth mentioning ahead of time? Well, if we see this just as blessing, blessed are, and that's all we think here, uh, then we might easily believe that these are eight or nine forms of bartering that take place. right? Blessing in the faith realm often looks like, okay, well, if I do this, then God will bless me, cause and effect, uh, as a kind of reward for my action. But if I fail to do this, he He will withhold blessing for me, like, like some spiritual dog treats, if you will. Hey, TJ, good job reading your Bible. And he pats my head and, and blesses me. But then when I don't, he, he doesn't want to look at me and there's no pat, and there's no blessing. That, that type of religious bartering or, or this uh, blessings by works is absolutely not what Jesus is talking about here. It's also not what he's trying to convince you to walk into and live inside of. What is happening instead, and this may seem like a subtle nuance, but, it, but it's really, really important. What's happening instead uh, is uh, he's telling us where, where Makarios comes from, where happiness and flourishing actually come from. It's not if I do these things, if I become poor in spirit, if I mourn on Thursdays, not Friday because I want to have fun on Friday. Like, then he'll give me a blessing or let me into the kingdom of God. No, that's not what it's saying. Jesus is saying these things, these dispositions, will naturally lead you to these other things, right? So here it is. Uh, As in when we are poor in spirit, that lets us be in and experience the kingdom of God. It's not that he pats our head and says, I'll bless you with it. It's when we do those things, we can actually live in and experience it. When we are those who mourn, it lets us participate in his comfort. When we are meek, it lets us inherit the earth. Basically, Jesus is presenting to us kind of the economy of the kingdom, the way the kingdom of God looks and the way that it works. A couple of notes just kind of to keep in mind during the series. These dispositions and traits are all fairly countercultural, meaning Jesus will say, This will lead you to happiness and flourishing, and the world will go, He's lying to you. Jesus says meekness will lead to something good. The world will often call meekness weakness. The world runs from sadness and mourning. Get away. I'm not going to enter in. And Jesus says participate in it and walk into it. Also, these beatitudes are not meant to be viewed like spiritual gifts. They aren't things that you participate in three and leave the others behind. These dispositions, these postures are for all believers who follow Jesus. The question would be, are you a follower of Jesus? Yes, then all the Beatitudes are for you. There's no picking, there's no choosing, there's no ignoring. I'll do some righteous stuff, but I ain't going to be no peacemaker. That's not the way it goes. But with this, Jesus is making a truth claim. This is how you were meant to live. This is how my people are meant to live inside my kingdom. I'll give away a little bit. The text that comes right after the Beatitudes, not surprisingly, are the salt and light texts. We'll get there. This is the type of life where happiness and flourishing are truly found. Not the world, but mine. The question that we're all going to have to wrestle with in the coming weeks, though, is this. Do we believe him? Or do, we reject, or do we reject his path and kingdom in order to follow our own path because we believe it will lead us to a happier, more flourishing place than he will? As we move forward, we'll, we'll call to memory Jesus' words a little bit later in Matthew 7. Jesus taught that the test of discipleship, the litmus test, is whether we act on his teachings. Whether we put into practice his words, like we actually live them out. Do you nod your head at them, or do you live by them? Those who put his words into practice are ones who build their house upon the rock. Over and over, this series is going to ask you what your house is built on. And we'll just kind of have to wrestle with it. So the very first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the disposition For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. From what we've discussed, Jesus opens this first beatitude by saying, Makarios, happiness, and flourishing come to those who are poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of God. That means Jesus is saying, You cannot find true happiness and flourishing, and you cannot have the kingdom of God as your own. If you're living in a way that rejects spiritual poverty, which leads us to ask, okay, what does spiritual poverty mean? To be poor means to not have means of your own, to have a lack of something. So if I said, Hey man, I'm cash poor right now, it means I can't buy much in the economy of finance. Why? Cause I don't got no money. To be spiritually poor means you can't buy much in the economy of the spirit. You do not have the means to spiritually secure for yourself anything that you need. You're spirit poor. This is crucial. Some people hear poor in spirit, and they think of somebody with like a crummy personality. Oh, that just means shy or anxious or just any number of things. Maybe it's just someone who's down on themselves. They're poor in spirit. Look at, look at how much they don't like themselves. That's not what he means. What Jesus is talking here about is more how, what is our disposition and our posture and our attitude about ourselves? How much capital do we think that we have uh, saved up in our bank spiritually out of what we've done on our own? How much capital do we have in the, the bank to earn us some sort of spiritual position through doing any number of things? How much credit do you have in the spiritual bank? Now this idea of Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven would have been an abrupt collision into the day he was speaking it into the Jewish people were being taught by their leaders that they could actually become spiritually rich. By what they do, by following the, the traditions that have been passed on, by obeying the law, by, by being ceremonially clean, by doing all of the washings and, and, and tithing even on your spice rack and all of this stuff. They thought that they could, through their good habits and their following of the law and their, and their practices of faith, thereby earn themselves some capital in their account spiritually to where God would kind of owe them some sort of favor. So they thought they could store up spiritual means through good living. And Jesus told them, if you think you have means spiritually, you will not find happiness, you will not flourish, and you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Imagine that to a Jewish religious culture. He just told them all their good deeds were worthless. At least they were worthless in buying themselves redemption or salvation.
1: Now to the Romans,
0: the other people in that culture, they did not care about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, largely, uh, they also didn't care about God or the God of the Bible, for that matter. But they were highly pragmatic, and their culture believed in pride and what you do for you quite heavily. So uh, they, they kind of believed that a man's worth was, was gained by, by power or by money or by earned through what they do. That a flourishing life was one that got wealthy, wise, or powerful, or experienced anything that they really wanted. And Jesus says, hey, that plan for happiness and flourishing, that's not going to work either. That pride and that belief in oneself will not lead them to where they need to go. So notice, Jesus, beginning of his earthly ministry, first public sermon, he just kind of destroys everyone's worldview. Going like, all that stuff, it's not going to work. He says to them, self-salvation, trying to earn capital spiritually by good works, and self-exaltation by trying to do things to, to put your spirit in a good space. Uh, he says that they're only going to lead you to destruction. Not happiness, not flourishing, not the kingdom of heaven. So lay those things down and understand spiritual poverty is the, the door that we, we must walk into to enter his kingdom and find true happiness and flourishing. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote one of the best books that I've ever seen on the Sermon on the Mount, and I kind of busted that back out over the last couple weeks, and uh, there was a quote that I had highlighted from a long time ago, and it, it just struck me again. He says this, We cannot be filled until we are first empty. You cannot fill with new wine a vessel, which is partially filled already with old wine until the old wine has been poured out. What does this mean, or how can that be applied here? We cannot become those who are rich in Christ. We cannot be filled to overflowing with his righteousness and his peace if we're still trying to stock up wealth for ourselves spiritually on our own. You can't be rich in Jesus if you're still trying to stuff your pockets here on your own way. The beginning, we can understand like when he's talking, um, these words about filling up, they're talking about righteousness. The the beginning of repentance is the the, the recognition of one's spiritual bankruptcy. Wow, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and I can't fix it. The beginning of repentance is realizing one's inability to become righteous on one's own and need for outside help. See, the only way to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to be made right with God, to receive salvation and walk into the eternal life that God has for us, is to first lay down any hope that we on our own can save ourselves. To lay down any belief that our very best actions and best deeds and best churchy things will atone for even just a partial sin. You see, the only way in, the only way to flourish truly as a human being in this life or for all of eternity for that matter is to go all in on Jesus. To be emptied out of yourself so Christ can fill you up. It's in him in him alone that we find salvation. He is our everything. That's why we're going to sing Rock of Ages in a little bit. Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. I've got no capital here to do anything for me. It's your cross and your cross alone, and everything is poured into that. All my hope. The the, the next line, naked I come to thee for dress helpless. I look to thee for grace. I've got nothing. I have no capital here. I have no standing here. I have no good works here that buy me anything. The first and continual step to happiness is to throw all hope. Not 95% or 90, but 100% of our hope onto Christ. And in that place, you can experience his promise to give you rest. Why? Because you don't have to try so hard to save yourself anymore. There's a peace and a rest and a calm that comes there. And I I wonder how that lands on on you this morning. For you here and the ones listening as well, um, caveat that, there are those who are licentious, like they've walked into license, meaning they, they aren't throwing all their hope on Christ. They're just kind of using grace as a license to do whatever they want and think that they're fine. So things like addictions and pride and anger and a lack of mercy, they're inconsequential, and they're all ignored because people think that Jesus doesn't care about those things. Those are not who the people that I'm about to address, if that's you. Man, the call is just to repent. Jesus is better anyway. But some of us listening are always just so disappointed in ourselves. I'm in that category often. Always frustrated that I can't be godlier, that I can't fix this issue. Always just kind of dealing with this tension that, that, man, I can't seem to read more or learn more or evangelize more in order to be like a, a, a quote unquote good Christian. Man, I just, I, I can't seem to produce enough. I can't accomplish enough. And maybe you always feel like you're one or two steps behind the curve in the faith realm all the time. Might these opening words on how to truly flourish be for you and for me? See, the beauty of the gospel is that you could never and would never be enough, but in your spot of not enoughness, Jesus came to fulfill all that you could. That That is the beauty. See, you can find happiness. You can find a, a, a good spot for your soul to rest today by laying down any remaining hope in your good works to secure a better spot for you. This lets you just exhale to where in a fresh way you can feel accepted and you can feel grace and mercy and begin to walk in and enjoy the kingdom of God instead of always worrying that it's going to be taken away or that God isn't happy with you or doesn't love you anymore. See, when you are poor in spirit, you stop putting any faith in yourself and all faith in Jesus. Does not for a second mean you don't try to be like him. But you understand a whole lot more when you fall down. Maybe you're here and you're more like the real ones though, constantly striving to do more, to make God love, or you aren't constantly striving to do more, to make God love or accept you. You, you aren't on a self salvation project through good deeds or work. Instead, your salvation journey is one that believes that true salvation or happiness comes through you getting more or doing more or having more in your life. You find yourself maybe constantly trying to carve out a better existence, always trying to accomplish more or get to a better position. Uh, You find yourself never satisfied uh, and you're always seeking new experiences and and new uh, Instagram moments to make you happy, whether it's vacations or pursuit of a hobby or anything like that. That disposition is still one that rejects spiritual poverty. Why? Because it's believing that we, as spiritual beings, can amass enough stuff through our life to satisfy our longing in our spirit and make up for all the things that are broken inside of us. It's not trying to earn salvation. It's just believing that it can, like, mute and numb the things that are going on inside of you if you just get to the next great thing. There's a song that I've liked for years by the lead singer of, of Thrice. Uh, don't Google him now. He's going through a weird faith thing. But... Uh, the song is good. He says this, man. This song, like I, I played it, I played it in a service at the Ark. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that was a mistake. Um, I should stay on my notes. He wrote a song called "It's Not Enough," but here are the words. Remember the mindset of if I you just get the next thing. The words of the song: "Though all the wealth of men was mine to squander." And towers of ivory rose beneath my feet. Were palaces of pleasure mine to wonder, the sum of it would leave me incomplete. Though every soul would hold my name in honor and the truest love was always by my side, my praises sung by grateful sons and daughters, my soul would never still be satisfied. It's not enough. It's not enough. I could walk this world forever till my shoes are filled with blood. It's not enough. It's not enough. See, that song is about the futility of trying to fill the longing in your soul with stuff. Read Romans trying to, to, to let creation satisfy you instead of the creator. It declares the same realities as the book of, of Ecclesiastes as well, all this vanity. That we can never, no matter uh, how much we get or how many fun things that we experience, we can never get to a place that it will fix the broken stuff inside of your soul that sin has caused. The only thing that redeems, the only thing that fulfills our spirit is Christ, his work, his accomplishment, his mercy, his peace. The other thing is his rest. See, no matter how much of creation we gain or experience, it will not change the things that are busted up. That's you and you find yourself maybe in this season of life way too caught up with your own life and the things that you have and where you're going and what's happening. Hear Christ say to you, hey, stop trying to build up spiritual wealth. It's not going to take you where you want to go. And I pray that you hear that not in a hammer way, but in a loving way to go like it's just not going to lead you where you want. And the call for Christ to say, hey, come to me, I've got it, though. The call to be poor in spirit is a call from Jesus to empty our pockets completely. To stop trying to gain spiritual standing with how you live and instead live by grace. Accept in your heart that Christ knew what he was buying when he paid for you. He doesn't regret the price that he paid and he hasn't stopped loving you. Remember the last message from Ephesians. All of it just shows you've been loved the entire time. It does not mean stop trying. It does not mean stop reaching out for righteousness. We're going to get to that one later, just stop thinking that that process makes God love you more than you. He already does. He loves you fully now. On the other side, stop trying to fill your pockets with more experiences. Stop trying to fill it with all the stuff that the world has to offer. Instead, maybe possibly today, in humility, confess to Christ something's off. I've been trying to fix it through all of this stuff. And even though I didn't really necessarily think it's sinful, it's not working. I need you help me. The beauty of when you do that is Christ will enter into the deep longings of your soul and comfort you for both sides. Those who are living like the Jewish people of the day or the Romans, instead of trying to reach into your pockets anymore, empty them out and let Christ fill you up. This is the meaning of spiritual poverty. Giving yourself 100% to the understanding that you need Jesus. Like truly, you just didn't need him for conversion, you needed him for conversion, and you need him every day. He can beat you and help you for the striving of your heart that you can't seem to fix. Understand this process isn't revolutionary or new, these words, right, Jesus says later, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, I've come to call sinners, which is to say, people who don't think they need me, they can't have me. Empty out any of your hope in yourself so that you know that you need him and that you can find even more rest and joy in him. Those who try and fill themselves up on their own cannot be filled by me. This is also why Jesus calls himself the bread of life, or the water of eternal life that will satisfy. Because he himself has the means to fix our souls and satisfy them. Nothing else will do until we sell give ourselves over to that. We will not flourish. We will not find this version of happiness. No matter how hard we try. This is an invitation. In Jesus' words to you, blessed are the poor in spirit. That thing that goes like, you've got to do better. you got to fix more. you got to get more. No, no, you don't. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's profoundly good news. We can come to Christ with nothing of our own. No resume of goodness. We don't have to buy in by acquiring a certain number of things in the world. Right in our spot of need, the gentle and lowly Savior says, I'm here. He's more than willing to save and redeem and cover us with his love. Church, there are going to be so many messages coming at us over the coming months. Yelling, this is the way to flourishing. This is what is right. This is how we'll be happy. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. In the face of those, I pray that we would just trust Jesus more. That we would trust that he knows the path that we need more than anyone else. We throw away our contingency plans for flourishing and we put the full weight of our hope on his mighty shoulders, which are able to withstand. See, this is where flourishing starts. Interestingly enough, it's at the exact same pl- place where self-dependency stops. In that place, Christ will meet you and you'll find happiness that he offers. Remember his words in John, joy, I give you not the world, though, but my own. I pray now that we would examine our hearts after hearing those words and really just ask, hey, have I become spiritually poor? Am I now? Have I got kind of high on myself and what I have to offer? Where am I at? Maybe some of us hear the invitation to receive grace for the first time, like, no, I've never been there. I've always just kind of thought I could, I could kind of do enough and, and pull myself above the curve to get him to love me. And if that's where you're at today, I pray that you would hear his invitation and say, you don't have to do that. You can just come. For the others of us, I pray that we would have a renewal in our feeling of really life and joy in Christ. By knowing he's paid it all and we can rest fully in that no matter what the world has going on around us. If you hear this message of poor in spirit, you're like, man, I'm actually doing okay on that one. i got nothing and I know it. And even worship and thankfulness today, God, you've rid me from my pride. Will you build me back up in your love? Thank you for doing a good work and just celebrate in light of that. We always don't have to be overly hard on ourselves. We can celebrate the wins as well, but I pray all of us in some way or another would receive renewal in Christ's message. I've paid it all, I've got it all. It's fine that you are spiritually poor because I've got all that you need and I'm more than willing to give it. We'll take communion today. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, it says this, Gary, you can come on back up. It says, for I received from the Lord what I, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he is betrayed took bread and we given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The beauty is you can take communion today. If you haven't uh, grabbed one of the uh, the single-use cups, we have them back there. Uh, but as you're taking today, here's the beauty of what you get to say and proclaim to your heart while you're worshiping with the body. I have no means and everything is in you. Your blood paid for 100%, and your body was crushed for 100%, and I take knowing that it feeds my soul to rest all in you. that's what we're saying in worship. So as we we take today, I pray that your heart would be encouraged in that, that you would wrestle properly. If if you put too much stock in your own ability, that you would pray, God, I I need to see clearly, again, that you have done it all and not rest in me even 1% anymore. Help me as I take to fully depend on you. I pray that he'll meet you there. For us, communion is what we do as believers. If your faith is not in Jesus, we'd ask that you would just kind of skip that step. If your faith is not have, I pray that you would be built up today, that your heart would be encouraged. Will you stand and pray with me? God, I thank you for this. Jesus, I thank you that you come. And through all the noise and all the best plans and all the self-help and just all the stuff that you speak to our hearts now, you are poor in spirit. Pray that we would hear that. Even more so for our hearts, that it would become good news. Jesus, I need that. That you would become our foundation, our rock, that we would have a hundred percent confidence in you. Would you do that in us today, God? Would you stir our affection for you? Would you stir our, our gratitude and joy in you? May we worship. Not out of bartering, but maybe we worship out of joy that you've done so much. That you've offered us so much. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and work. We need you.
1: My words without
0: you are useless. So, Spirit, come and work. Stir our affection for Christ. Let us see Him. Break down the hard spots in our heart. Let us let go of everything that we're trying to store in our pockets so that our full faith can be put on Jesus. And Jesus, I pray that you would fill us up today. We pray that in your name. Be glorified, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy that is just renewed every day, no matter when we put confidence in ourselves or when we fall. You're good. We love you.